Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. It's Young Birder of the Year time again. We have just opened up registration for our annual birding mentoring program that has sent so many young birders into the birding and research and conservation world. Seriously, the track record is really impressive. But I feel like I should bring it up here because the podcast audience skews uh, younger than our usual ABA media outlets. Not that we have a ton of people in the 10 to 19 age range, but we have a few. I know you're out there. If you're interested in what is a really great opportunity to participate in some activities that will build your birding skills, get mentored by some really well-known people in our community, please head over to the website, aba.org, Young Birder Year Contest, and sign up. You do have to be a member of the ABA, but you're eligible for a young member student membership, which is half of a standard membership. So you got that going for you. So check it out. If you are a young birder, maybe you know a young birder, post it on your your listservs, your Facebook groups. If they're not dysfunctional, again, pass the news on. On the show today, the ivory-billed woodpecker and a handful of other species are officially extinct according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Few birds have captured the world's imagination like our lost largest woodpecker. And I have some thoughts about its role in my own birding trajectory that comes at the end of the episode. But first, let's talk large, still present owls. Blackiston's fish owl, to be precise, it was the subject of a memoir by Jonathan Slatt that came out last fall. It was widely praised. It is out in paperback now, and Jonathan joins me to talk about owls, writing, and the Russian Far East, Owls of the Eastern Ice, after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of September, first part of October, 2021. Birds in this space usually fit one of two criteria for usual mention, uh, being either a first record for a state, province, or territory, or being a bird of note in the ABA area. The first bird I have to mention is both an ABA code for Golden Crowned Warbler was photographed early this month in Cameron Parish, Louisiana. Golden Crowned Warbler is widespread in the Americas from Mexico all the way south to Argentina, but records north of the Rio Grande are relatively rare. Most ABA area records of Golden Crowned Warbler are from South Texas, understandably, as it is quite common in Northeast Mexico, though it has been known to wander. There are additional single records from New Mexico, Colorado, and now Louisiana. One more from Cumberland County, Maine, where a well-described sulfur-bellied flycatcher would be a state first. Unfortunately, that bird was a one-day wonder. This is a species, after all, that has a tendency to show up in weird places for maybe even hours before disappearing forever and has done so in nearby New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland. Lest you think this is a fairly straight-ahead identification, there are a number of sort of streaky-faced flycatchers out there. And while sulfur-bellied flycatcher may be the most likely, Maine does have a record of variegated flycatcher, so you never know. 
That's all I have for you this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Friday at aba.org slash rba. And if that isn't enough to sate your rare bird craving, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook, assuming that it is working, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. When Jonathan Slatt's Owls of the Eastern Ice came out last year, it was met with high praise from the New York Times and the Times of London, among others. Uh, How fortunate for us that there was a bird in the middle of it. Uh, Slatt's search for the enigmatic Blackiston's fish owl is a little bit of science, a little bit of adventure, a little bit of character study of the people and places of a part of the world that very few of us know at all. It is out now in paperback, which gives us an excuse to talk to him about a book that I really enjoyed. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan. Congrats on the book's continued success. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nate. So I, I suppose we can you know, start at the beginning. Like, why the Russian Far East? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> this it goes way back. Um, and so I, I grew up the son of a diplomat. And so mm-hmm. I, every two to four years, I was bouncing from one country to the next growing up. Mm-hmm. And my folks ended up in, in Moscow, in, in Russia, in the early 1990s. That was sort of my first experience with, with Russia. Yeah, that is an interesting uh, time to be in Russia. It was, yeah. Early '90s was it was it was. I mean, not, Moscow not was <laughs> Moscow was nuts. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I never really had any specific interest in Russia, um, and then kind of by chance ended up uh, tagging along with my dad on a business trip in the mid '90s to, to Vladivostok, to, to Primoria, and just instantly fell in love. I mean, it's one yeah. of, one of those things where you know, love at first sight, no question. Just absolutely wild, uh, rolling hills of green incredible wildlife not many people just just a just a paradise yeah and so can you describe blackiston's fish owl and sort of the places where where you find them because it's a species that even among relatively serious birders it's pretty mysterious yeah well there's there's um i mean there's not a ton of these birds in the wild there's thought to be one to two thousand total most of them are in russia there are some in japan so most of the people who have seen them actually end up in japan um there are uh, hot springs that are, are stocked with fish, so people can kind of you know sit somewhere nice and warm and comfortable and watch these owls come in, come in and eat. Uh, the majority of them are in these pretty hard to reach areas in, in Russia, and they are. I think they're they're almost improbable when you see one. I mean, they're they're so big. They, they stand there two and a half feet tall. Um, you know, that's, that's the size of, of, of a fire hydrant, right? They're they're <laughs> yeah. they're, they're burly. They're um, they're uh, they're they're shaggy, and they have these really floppy ear tufts. You, you have a burst of wind hit one of these birds from the side, and it's like these little explosions going off all over. Yeah. It's just this dense, dense plumage. So yeah, so they kind of haunt these um, uh, these waterways in, in remote parts of Northeast Asia looking mostly for fish in a, in a part of the world where most waterways freeze in winter. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, you know, your descriptions of the places and of the, uh, the forest that these birds are found in are, are pretty, pretty incredible. I imagine as a field researcher, it, it, I mean, you described all the problems that you had, even getting to these places, um, dealing with weather, dealing with mud, dealing with snow, dealing with all of this stuff, just to even see these birds, let alone to try and do this kind of intensive work studying their their needs yeah i mean there's there's not a lot of infrastructure in, in the <laughs> region and a lot of the travel is it's seasonally dependent i mean you can go in some areas in the winter that you just simply cannot get to other times of the year because of, of mud or, or other obstacles it, it also seems hardly fair that this part of the world has not only has these sort of amazing massive owls but also tigers and brown bears and weird ungulates like goral and, and musk deer and stellar sea eagles it's like 
if you said there were mammoths there, I would, you know, I wouldn't be terribly shocked. It's wild, like in the most ideal sense of the word. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, these these same systems existed elsewhere on a much broader uh, geographic scale. It's just like that's where it's kind of shrunk to. I mean, there were, I mean, there still are some fish owls in, in northeast China, but not, you know, we don't, we don't know how many. Not that many. There used to be more tigers in northeast China. There's, yeah. they're actually coming back now, but you know, it's it's this system that's sort of kind of contracted to Primoria mm-hmm. because that's where it's still pretty wild, and that's where there aren't that many people. How do you go about researching a bird that no one knows? much about. It feels like you're like an 18th century scientist starting from scratch in some places for some of these. Like no one knew how to catch a Blackiston's fish owl. No one knew really how to, you know, where they were going half the year. Um, what is your mindset when you're trying to think about, you know, studying this bird when there's, when there's absolutely nothing? I mean, it must feel very, you know, freeing in a way because there's any number of directions you could go, but also like you're you're restricted by what you can do and what you do know and what you have yeah i, I think you touched on it i mean it's it's pretty uh, it, it, uh it's liberating it took a lot of stress <laughs> out of it because anything that we found out would have been useful information i mean i yeah. went i went to, i went to grad school with people who are really kind of getting into the weeds of of a specific bird for example you know molt of goldfinches or something i really kind of like what hasn't been done with a goldfinch okay let's look yeah. at this with fish owls it's like let's go find some and see what they do and then describe <laughs> that yeah being able to apply some of these modern technology on there must have been really cool too i love these gps tracker re- science these research that comes out like every year it seems like there's more and more gps information comes out i love looking at the maps i love imagining where these birds are going and what they're doing to be able to have this sort of wide expanse of what you could do and then to be able to apply modern technology to it that must have been must have been really cool it was cool and i do think it's important to keep a keep an eye on the old-fashioned methodologies Mm -hmm. too because so so much is lost if you you know if you think you can just strap technology to the back (laughs) of an animal and then learn everything you know remotely from your computer Mm -hmm. in, in, in the comfort of your home while this animal is out there doing these things you're going you're gonna to miss stuff. Um, so yes. I think it's really still important to kind of have this hybrid of doing the real field work, like getting a sense for where these birds are going and what they might be doing there rather than just all the, all the remote stuff. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about writing. Um, you're a wildlife biologist, and this project was at the time your, your dissertation. That is a really, really different style of prose. Yeah. from a book intended from a general audience. While you were in the field, did you have in mind a book like this, did you kind of file away these experiences to come back to once your research work was over? Was that too much? Was that something that you were had to do once you were kind of stepped back from it a little bit? I, I definitely filed away the experiences. Um, like I, I was writing down um, a- anecdotes as, as they happened. You know, keep, keep in mind that you know, I'm living in a truck with <laughs> two to four other dudes in the middle in the middle of winter right you have a lot and of time on your hands as well, and, well it's, it's, no, no, it's, it's just that it's, it's everything is just so it, it's so intensely russian and so <laughs> being able to uh you know experience something that the russians think is totally normal i'm like wait actually it's actually pretty weird yeah that we just broke through the ice and had to dig our way out and the russians are like ah it happens all the time so being able to sit down and sort of process this and write these things down mm-hmm. um it helped me think in english and be able to express myself uh freely and also sort of you know let off some steam with you know 
because you know uh, tensions do flare in a tight space like that, right. and de- being able to uh, sort of vent that uh, to it almost like to a to a to a diary was yeah. uh, cathartic. What is an intensely Russian experience like? Well, I just I just so it, it's you know think of when when you go to a different uh, a different country, you're you're in, you're in its culture, you're eating its food, you're uh, speaking its language if you can speak its language. Uh, there are cultural norms. So take that and then compact it into a tiny truck for two to four <laughs> weeks. And it's just like, good. It's, it's, it's all the time. It's always there. You can't, it, it's just yeah, there. Yeah. It really reminds me, you know, just in terms of the sort of people that you encounter in a place like this of, uh, you know, 19th century exploration of, of North America, like people go to these places for lots of reasons. They stay for lots of reasons. Uh, one of them is because it is so remote and wild. And, you know, there's a, there's a type of person that really likes maybe being a hermit or a near hermit or, you know, being self-sustaining for these long periods of time. You know, it really makes for interesting character studies. You were able to encounter a lot of these sorts of people yeah, I mean, there weren't many people in these woods, but we, <laughs> but we seem well, we seemed to run into every one, uh, yeah. and and they were all weird in one way or another. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there there was one guy who was who had been living for for ten years in a abandoned hydroelectric station from from World War II. Um, he was sort of just yeah living there, kind of kind of hiding out from from some bad people. He got into a bad business deal with in the early nineties. Um, yeah, he would you know make some money by catching catching fish and smoking them and selling them along the road uh yeah it's all, all kinds of weird people in those woods <laughs> when you say you know intensely russian that strikes me but you know i'm an american i've never visited russia i don't my 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 russian knowledge is very much influenced by sort of american cultural perception of russia sure. which has it's just very I don't know. There's a certain way about it that I'm sure you know, and a lot of people who may be listening sort of know what I'm talking about. It's wild that these places still exist, and I, th- I guess that goes part and parcel with the um, with the the animals that you find in these places too. That the people are living these very wild existences, obviously in a place where there's still these amazing, this amazing wildlife and this amazing environment that is under threat, but still, you know, holding on. Yeah, and actually, I started a you know right when the, the U.S. Russia relationship started to deteriorate in, mm-hmm. in, in recent times. It was, it was right after the uh, the Sochi Olympics. Um, you know, I, start, I started writing a, um, an occasional blog for Scientific American called "East of Siberia." Just these short, little, you know, five hundred word things, mm-hmm. just to describing these encounters with people and with wildlife in, in Russia, just to kind of tether people, just remind people that there are humans who live in these landscapes and there's an amazing wildlife here. And it doesn't matter what your politics are. Like this is a place that's worth knowing about and worth protecting. Yeah. You know, what is the sort of the current state of the owls? You know, you suggest in the epilogue that your work with them sort of comes on the periphery of other, other wildlife work that you do. Are they, are they hanging on there? Are there still, you know, wild places, the work that you did to, ostensibly was in some way to prevent logging of these areas. Um, is that still in place? Is that still happening? It, it is. We, we are still working with uh, the, the primary logging company in, mm-hmm. in this area um, to sort of reduce the impact of, of their activities on, on the owls. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. that's ongoing. Um, and we are actually, because of the, the success of the book, it's generated more interest in the bird. Oh, very good. And, and, we, and we do have some larger projects now um, in, in the works as well, which is, which is great. This, this is what I love to do. Mm-hmm. It's just not what I've been fully able to do due to <laughs> other commitments. 
Yeah. Um, I guess it's been several months since you've been able to, to get back. Obviously, the pandemic has probably put some of that on a hold, but the need for those conservation action plans is, is still there. Has the pandemic changed anything? Uh, it's, you know, I, yeah, I haven't gone. It's been what, yeah. two years now, right, actually, yeah. since, since I've, since I've been there. But I think, you know, the, the, the Russians I work with on this, this stuff, Sergei Somerch and Sergei Avdeyuk are both extremely competent people. And so mm-hmm. you know, the work is still ongoing. It's just that I'm not physically there to, uh, to, to do the work. Um, and I think that's, that's a, that's a great, you know, there's a lot of talk about, I think the term is parachute biology or something about, you mm-hmm. know, these the outsiders who kind of go into these areas and do the work and then leave without necessarily leaving anything right. behind. And the uh, Wildlife Conservation Society, who I work for, like one of the things we try to do is not be that, yeah, right? right. But uh, right. try to really like uh, build local capacity to engage in these uh, conservation problems. And I feel like with fish health, that's absolutely succeeding. Yeah. Um, obviously, Amur Tiger is the big conservation draw. Um, do efforts to protect them translate to efforts to protect the owls? Are they in the same places? Do they need the same things? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, and so you look at, look, yeah. yeah, I mean, the home range of a fish owl is approximately, let's say, three and a half, uh, six and a half uh, kilometers, square kilometers. So really not that big. Mm-hmm. Home range of a male Amur tiger is like 1,200 square right. kilometers. Yeah. And they use, it's the same habitat. I mean, every time I'm over there looking for owls in winter, I'm seeing tiger tracks on, on the river, on the frozen rivers, because mm-hmm. they're using this like a highway, just right. like we are that to get up sense. and down. So yeah, I mean, if you're protecting tigers, um, you're, you're protecting fish owls. I mean, sure, there are some owl-specific things, like looking at, at fishery issues and some of the roads that are, that are too close to waterways that degrade stream quality. But Generally speaking, yes. If you're if you're protecting tigers, you're protecting fish. Oh, that's good to hear. Are there any other co- sort of conservation issues that are that are going on there? Is it all sort of tiger centric? Because I feel like tigers, and to a lesser extent, maybe leopards, um, which are unfortunately not doing so well, um, are sort of the the big stories in the the Russian Far East. Um, are there is there anything else that people sort of need to be aware of um, that maybe this book is is bringing attention to? I think one thing that people, it's, it's difficult for most people to grasp, including myself, is the vast scale of this place. Mm-hmm. So the, the Russian Far East is about twice the size of India, with a pop, human population about the size of Manhattan. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about a huge, huge place with not many people. Yeah, a lot of wilderness, yeah. But the interest in natural resources is, is, ext- is, is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that I'm focusing on as, as, as part of my work is looking at uh, bird habitat, migratory bird habitat, looking at stopover sites. There's a lot of places that aren't currently protected that are being used, and there's not a whole lot of natural resource interest there yet. And so the idea is to try to get ahead of that a little bit. Um, so I'm working with uh, a, a, s- several NGOs in Russia, also sort of these international partnerships, um, like East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership, yeah. to sort of um, uh, identify some important areas and get them protected now for these birds. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of obviously um, spoonbilled sandpiper and Nordman's green shank are very yep. high on the list of, of of priorities for a lot of those, um, especially East Asian Australasian flyways and and things of that nature. You know, I always hear that. Yep, and I'm I'm, I'm directly working on, on both. Of oh, those really? Species. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, how, how is that conservation going? Like uh, last I heard, it was sort of holding holding steady. I guess is probably the. <laughs> you know, nothing, nothing terrible, but nothing great either. 
Yeah, for, for spoonbill sandpipers, I mean, I think the reason that the population decline has been uh, uh, has, has slowed down is, is because of the intense head starting, where this is group Birds Russia led by mm-hmm. Yevgeny Sierskovsky, who are you know, dumping new new birds into the into the wild population every year. It's, it's an incredible program that, that they're doing. Uh, and they're really working on creating this 15,000 square kilometer protected area where they have 90% of the known spoonies are breeding. I was, I was there two, two summers ago. Um, and for the green shanks, we're also working on getting a protected area uh, created at the only known nesting site. I mean, hmm. um, we funded this uh, work for people who found the first nests was like two years ago. Um, wild. For, for, well, first nests in like 40 years. Yeah. And they, they, um, this past season, they figured out a capture methodology and they were able to get 10 GPSs on Norman's green shanks. Um, they would, they could have caught more, they just, but the capture permit was for 10. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're hoping to go back next season and, and get more. That's really interesting. It's a similar story from your Blackiston's fish owl story. You I mean, you're basically having to do this stuff from scratch on a lot of these birds. It's, it's very much an irony. I think that we are at the sort of this golden age of technology in research biology and these birds are also sort of plummeting in numbers that are really, really concerning. In some ways, it sometimes feels like we're, we sort of, it gives us a front row seat to this decline in a way that we didn't have before. But um, it's fascinating nonetheless. Yeah. And also, at least we're able to try to do something about it. It's yeah, not one of these absolutely. species that, dis- that slipped through. It's not like, you know, this this list that just came out, right? With the mm-hmm. Bachman's right. warbler and, and ivory billed uh, woodpecker. Um, you know, we're at least trying to do something and we yeah. are making progress. So that's, yeah. hey, that's better than nothing. Do you think that the success of Owls of the Eastern Ice will help conservation efforts in places like the Russian Far East, even, you know, for birds like, uh, like the Greenshank and the Spoonbilled Sandpiper? Do you think that there's just, a, you know, an opportunity for more interest and more eyes on this part of the world and the conservation demands of the birds here? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, and that's one of the primary um, motivations for mm-hmm. writing the book was, I mean, you can't care about something if you don't know it exists. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And and so, you know, being able to uh, describe this place and I think share my my love for this place is is pretty important. And, you know, the Russian coastline is like a third of the East Asian Oscillation Flyway. You know, it's it's massive and there's not a whole lot being done up there right now. Mm-hmm. And this is our chance. We can get in there. We can protect some of these areas. We can protect the habitat, of these, the breeding habitat of these birds. Yeah. Is the primary threat logging in that part of the world or just resource extraction just more broadly? For uh, for, for fish owls, it's um, I, I think it's 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 fish, fisheries is the bigger thing. Oh, really? Because the, the logging, they're not going after the big trees that the fish owls nest in. You know, it's it's selective logging. So they're taking out parts of the forest, and it's you know it's birch, it's fir, um, it, you know, it's not, uh, it's large. It's not the these big trees, these big old growth trees that the, that the owls need to nest in. Um, issues for some of these other birds, I think, will be uh, things like fishing and oil gas line development. Jonathan Slatt's book, Owls of the Eastern Ice, A Quest to Find and Save the World's Largest Owl, is available in paperback wherever you find books. May I suggest our partners, BDO Books? Anyway, uh, thanks so much for talking to me, and uh, thanks for such a, such a great nature book. Yeah, thanks, Nate. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that the ivory-billed woodpecker had been rediscovered. I was working in an infectious disease lab at Duke University, very basic entry-level, science job. My lab mates and I had taken a work trip to San Francisco to learn how to use a very new, very fancy piece of equipment, and we were tooling around San Francisco. 
and a bus, stopping at various touristy locations one afternoon. We had just crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, piled out of the vehicle on the Marin County side to watch the sun go down when my dad called me. Did you hear the news? He asked. I had not. And even though I wasn't doing much birding at the time, what he told me next reached down and grabbed the teenage me that was as obsessed with birds as anyone and pulled it back to the surface. And I sort of contemplated this rediscovery as I watched the sun go down over the city of San Francisco. When we got back to the hotel late that night, I spent time in a world I hadn't been part of for years. The world of birders on forums and blogs and listservs over the moon with the news that one of the most iconic birds in North America, thought to be extinct for decades, was found again in the big woods of Arkansas. I guess we all sort of know what happened after that. It didn't take long before the evidence was called into question, and rightly so, I think. In the clear light of day, the sighting that we all accepted without question became, well, questionable. There were red flags, not least of which the fact that a concerted effort by dozens upon dozens of people, including ABA President Jeffrey Gordon pre-President Days, could not turn up anything more closely resembling an ivory-billed woodpecker than the slightly smaller and far less camera-averse pileated woodpecker. The period of the ivory bill story after that was characterized by dueling words, an online ranker that featured none other than David Sibley, who was terminally averse to the ranker part but did make good arguments critical of the sightings. I was in the middle of this too. I had just started writing about birds on my own blog, having got back into birding pretty hardcore in the months between. And my ivory build post gathered me some small bit of notoriety among the growing bird blog world. I can actually draw a direct line from those posts to this podcast. So I think it's safe to say that without the ivory build woodpecker, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. So I was understandably a little, I don't know, melancholy about the official announcement this week by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that the ivory-billed woodpecker, along with a, a number of other species that have not been seen in decades, like Bachman's warbler and a few Hawaiian honeycreepers, are gone. I'd sort of resigned myself to this fact long ago. But an official bureaucratic designation does sort of close a door to a room that most of us knew has been empty for a while now. I look back on those months in the wake of the rediscovery, quote-unquote, as a time when we were full of hope that maybe we didn't screw things up quite as badly as we thought we did. I think that's what we wanted to believe, as much as the fact that this bird might still be out there, that there are second chances, that extinction maybe isn't forever. I think that is what clouded the judgment of a lot of otherwise excellent and critical scientists and birders in a way that we have still not quite come to terms with. I note in a Washington Post article about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife decision, John Fitzpatrick, the then head of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and a major figure in the whole rediscovery saga, still says, I am not ready to call it extinct. Though the statement is clearly more contemplative than anything else, it is a testament that the Lord God bird's place in the ornithological ethos is as profound in 2021 as it ever was 15 years ago or 150 years ago. In extinction as in life, it still has a lot of influence. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of the free resources that the ABA provides for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get magazines, you get discounts to our partners, you get the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community here in the ABA area and around the world. Get more information at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this time around. Matthew Jorgensen of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Jared Clark and family of Edenwold, Saskatchewan, Yusushi Nakagawa of St. Paul, Minnesota, Rod Kelsey and family of Sacramento, California, Linda Gianti of Huntington, Vermont, Michael Hinau of Kennewick, Washington, Jim Brassick of Kansas, Ohio, that's two states in one, that's pretty cool, and Rafael Buyo of Parlin, New Jersey, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. You all continue to make me feel great every time I read these out every week. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who feels like Lord Godbird nickname is too good to retire completely, arguing that we should modify it for use with other North American species. And I, I hear that. For instance, the Inhinga, which skewers fish on its long, sharp bill, should be the sword jawed bird. Technical production is by John Lowry, who finds the actions of American robins on a freshly and closely mown lawn to be an excellent reason to refer to them as Ford sod birds. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who couldn't decide whether the webbed feet of cormorants or geese were more paddle-shaped, and thus, which one deserved to be called the Ord Shod Bird. You can find us at aba.org, on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Association, or ABA. It is October, and the Purple Martins are mostly gone. But upon their return, I hope to see them congregating at those artificial houses made of white-painted cucurbits, and think to myself, yeah, here come the Gord Squad Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for tolerating all of that. Stay healthy. Till next week.